we go to prayer, I want to invite you just to take your seat for a moment and just ask you to think about something with me and just give you a chance just in your own heart to sort of respond, not to sort of, to truly, genuinely respond to the things that we've already heard and sung. And as I was thinking about it as we were just singing that song, if those things we just sang are really true about Christ, in Christ alone my hope is found, no power of hell, no scheme of man can pluck me from his hand, if those things are really true, think about this with me, we of all people, and the scripture says this, ought to be full of hope. We should not be the hopeless ones, we should be the hopeful ones. We should be the ones who truly, it's not just a game, it's not just a, a sort of silly Christian wish that when people see the way we conduct ourselves, the way we speak, the expression of our faces, even if we're going through tough times, we should be the ones of hope. We should be the ones with hope, the ones who express and convey hope. These are difficult times to be hopeful people, but in Christ alone our hope is found, Right? So here's my thought for you as we go to prayer. And in a minute, I'm just going to ask you to bow your head and just sort of, whatever, to whatever degree you need to, just sort of do business with the Lord. But I was reading the Psalms early this morning, and I read something in Psalm 130, Psalm 130, and I'd read it before. I just never read it this way before. The psalmist says, I don't know who wrote it, says that I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait. In his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. My soul waits for the Lord. And then there's this cry, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there's loving kindness, abundant redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And here's what I read in a way I'd never, maybe you've always read it this way. For me, it was a revelation. I'm going to share my little revelation with you. I've thought about that line that my soul waits for the Lord, hopes in the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. And as I've always thought about that, that idea of the watchman waiting for the morning, just gutting it out till sunrise comes. It'll all be better when the sun comes up. And if we can just get the sunrise, if we can just make it through the night, then it'll all be okay. That's not the way it works. And, and, and I don't mean to sound, this, this to sound some sort of weird, unusual way. But what the Lord impressed on me, and I felt like he was just really impressing it on my heart, he said, have I ever failed to make the sun rise? Has there ever been a day where the sun failed to rise? Did we ever wake up and, and it was just morning never came? No. What he's saying is this, as sure as the sun will rise, and so far it always has, right? There's hope. I will come through. I'm not going to be with you when the sun rises. I'm going to be with you until the sun rises. And then when the sun rises, you'll realize I've been there all along. So here's my thought. I don't know what you're dealing with. Maybe today's a good day. Maybe it's a good season. You're full of hope. Your opportunity in the next moment as we go to prayer is just to thank God for that. Just declare it all over again. Lord, my soul does wait for you. And, and in you is my hope. Maybe this morning you're fighting for hope and you're fighting hard. Maybe it's something very specific. Maybe you just woke up with this general sense of, kind of like I did this morning, all right? As we go to prayer, I want you to think about what the psalmist says here and absorb that as, no, he's with me right now. And as sure as the sun will rise, my hope will not be disappointed. As sure as the sun rose today and it'll rise again tomorrow, my God will come through. I don't know how. I don't know when. This promise holds as long as the sun continues to rise. He will be your hope. He will be with you. And maybe you just need to remind before the Lord yourself of that this morning. Maybe you need to confess that you have been walking around doom and gloom, despair, hopelessness, and it's because you've forgotten that He's with you even in the night. 
And, and like a watchman, you can wait for the morning knowing it is going to come. So as we bow our heads, here's what I want you to do. Just to take a minute and just settle where your hope is with the Lord this morning. And it's, here's the thing. I'll pray as I always do, but as soon as it's settled, just to stand back up. Just as you're in, we'll be saying just in Christ alone, I stand. I stand in Christ. I stand firm in Christ. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. So as you bow your heads, I'm just going to give you 30 seconds. May not be enough. Maybe it's more than enough. But when you have settled before the Lord, yes, Lord, my hope is in you today. I redeclare it. I affirm it. I celebrate it. Then you just stand back up. We may not all stand. That's okay. We be honest before the Lord. But when you have been reminded and assured before the Lord of where your hope is, just as your quiet, personal declaration that in Christ alone my hope is found, you stand back up, and then I'll pray as we go into the message. So this is your moment to talk with him. Father, our gathering here today is in itself a silent declaration that Jesus is Lord, that our God is good, that he's faithful, that the gospel is real, that salvation is secure. But Father, sometimes even knowing all those things, we come back, our hope's been rattled. Lord, literally, we live in days where every time we turn on the computer, the radio, the TV, there's something there that will steal our hope if we let it. Father, we get immersed in the things of the world. Some of us, our jobs are hard. Some of us, our marriages are rough. Some of us, our relationships are broken. Some of us, the the money is in short supply. And everything around us is stealing our hope. But sure as the sun will rise, as it rose this morning, and it will rise again tomorrow, Lord, you are with us in the night. And when the sun rises, when hope breaks, when the dawn comes, we'll be reminded you were there all along. Father, we above all people ought to be people in these difficult days of great hope. We ought to be the ones who are confident, Father, not because we came to church and somebody said so, not because we stood up at the end of a prayer, but because Jesus is on his throne and he's made precious and magnificent promises. And Father, when we come before you, when we get honest before you, when we yield and surrender to you, Father, everything sort of finds its right place, its proper perspective once again. Father, we pray that you, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today, those who are on their feet and those who are still seated in the pew, for whatever reason, it doesn't matter. Not to us, it matters greatly to you. Father, I pray that each one of us, if not yet, that by the time we leave today, we'll have our hope reset, firmly established on the rock that is Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel and the promise that the dawn will come. Father, that's why you gave us your word to remind us of these things. So it wasn't just by word of mouth. It wasn't just because somebody said so, but your precious and magnificent promises are revealed to us in your word so that we might hear them and repeat them and remind each other of them and celebrate them. And even as we open it, you might speak to us. And Father, that's what I'm going to ask you to do right now. That is always, but in another sense, like never before, you would use your word, the preaching of your word, the power of your word, the ministry of your word to change our hearts today. 
Father, not because I have something great to say. I'd, I'll be happy if I can get it all said in the time allotted. But Father, we know that when we are weak, when I am weak, you are strong. And Father, that when we are humble and broken, you are mighty to come and speak and move. Father, unite our hearts, not around Aaron's message, but around your eternal, enduring word. And send your spirit to guide us in truth, to guard us from error, to deliver us from apathy, and to help us see Jesus. May we see him clearly this morning in your word and in our worship. May we see him only this morning in your word and through our worship. And may we leave rejoicing in a little while, Father. Not because all is right with the world when we walk out the door, but because all is right in heaven and among the people of God. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray you'd use it as you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As you do so, we'll send the boys and girls out for Children's Church. And I'd invite those who are not going out to Children's Church, those five-year-olds up to second graders, they can head out. This morning I want you to open your Bible as we prepare to go to God's Word, to the Old Testament, as we continue this study this look at what the Bible says about revival. What is revival? What does it look like? How does it come? How do we become, most importantly, what we're talking about? How do we as believers become revival-ready, whether God ever brings it or not? I want you to go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. I want you to turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And uh, this is a very, uh, it's kind of a long story. It's a little bit of a complicated story. So we're going to take it in small bits and pieces this morning walking through it together, but I want you to be ready so that when it's time, we can dig into it. And as you're making your way there, I just want to share one more thing. We've already had a lot of prayer this morning. We've been reminded uh, through Perry and Rick uh, just the importance of prayer this morning. I want to remind you and exhort you uh, to remember that this Wednesday is the first Wednesday of the month, and we will be gathering to pray again over in the Commons prayer room, 7 o'clock Wednesday night for Fresh Encounter. And I want to urge you to join us. We are going to be praying just with the the things, the current events in our world today in mind. Uh, God has sort of laid a psalm on my heart that I'm excited to pray from and pray through with you. And I am going to, particularly in light of what we've looked at in God's Word the last few weeks about the importance of seeking Him and seeking Him together, passionately and collectively, I'm going to urge you to join us. Uh, Not because it will make me feel better if the crowd is larger, but because if we're truly hungry for revival, if we're truly longing to see a great movement of God, remember, it's passionately and collectively we come together to pursue Him. So I want you to make a priority. We have nursery provided, so that uh, hopefully takes that out of the way. I know not everyone's schedule permits it, but if yours has an opening, even if it doesn't, maybe you want to make one to join us as we Wednesday night, this Wednesday from 7 to 8, we meet to seek God's face together to begin to practice what it is we're seeing and hearing from his word. With that said, we're in 2 Samuel 6 this morning. I'll begin reading in a moment, but before I do, I want to begin by sharing with you, and maybe some of you know this well, and some of you have never heard it before, but in Latin there is a term. And that term is Coram Deo. It's the title of this morning's sermon. You've probably seen it already in your bulletin. And the Latin term Coram Deo, I'm not a Latin scholar in any sense of the word, but I have come to understand that it literally means before the face of God. Coram Deo means before the face of God. And down through the centuries of church history, that is a term that has sometimes been used by believers in Jesus Christ to express the idea, to express the notion of living all of our lives, every part of it, in the knowledge that we are constantly in God's presence. That he sees, knows exactly what's going on, and he's going through it 
with us. The idea of living all our lives aware that God is with us. What it means to live a life coram Deo means that my life as a believer is not, everybody say, my life is not. My, my life is not parceled out into over here is the spiritual slash religious component, and over here is the non-spiritual, non-religious component, and never the twain shall meet. That I've got some stuff I do with God and for God, and the rest of it is more or less up to me to do with as I please. No, as a Christian, my ambition ought to be coram Deo, that everywhere I go, everything I do, everything I think, the way that I respond to my circumstances reflects the knowledge, the reality, the assurance that I am doing it before the face of God. Before the face of God. We might put it more fam- in a more familiar way, everything I do is done in his presence. That as Jesus said last week at the end of the Great Commission, that God means it when he says, I am with you always. And this morning as we continue exploring what it takes, what it means to set our sails for revival. And by revival, once again, let me very quickly remind you, we mean we're talking about an extraordinary movement of God's Holy Spirit that awakens God's people to church like never before, to the majesty of God, the supremacy of Christ, the power of the gospel through which believers are transformed, unbelievers are saved, and society is reformed to the glory of God. As we continue exploring and pursuing how to prepare for if and when the mighty rushing wind of God's Holy Spirit blows again, the theme of God's presence, the face of God, the presence of God is what we are going to dig into via the very colorful and in some ways very confusing story recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 6. The setting is simply this in 2 Samuel 6. King David, ruling over Israel, hasn't been in that role long, is bringing the sacred Ark of the Covenant into Israel's newly established capital of Jerusalem. That's what's happening, what's led up to this moment. I want you now with that, simply that much in mind, I'll give you more context in a moment, To look with me at your Bible, 2 Samuel 6, the first five verses where this is what God's word says. It says, now David gathered, again gathered, all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel, all the other people, were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. Now we'll stop right there for a moment just to sort of continue to set the scene before we go into any further to exactly what it is that is going on. Because before we can talk about this idea and what this passage can teach us about Coram Deo, about living all our lives aware of the face of God, living all of our lives as believers in the knowledge that we are constantly always, in a sense, spiritually speaking, in his presence. First of all, we've got to understand what's going on here by taking a look in these first five verses at simply the Ark of the Covenant, this Ark, which is sort of the centerpiece of the story, literally speaking, and what that teaches or what that conveys to us about the presence of the Lord. So in verses one through five, I want to take a minute to talk about the Ark of the Covenant 
and the presence of the Lord. Because the deal here is this, with just a little more information than I've given you already. The deal here in 2 Samuel 6 is that having ascended to Israel's throne, here's what King David, before this chapter begins, had already done. He had united the people from 12 independent tribes into one mighty nation, the nation, the people of Israel. He then secured their borders, establishing a sense of national security, of peace and protection from the enemies who were still out to get them. And then having done that, he established Jerusalem as Israel's brand new and meant to be intended to be forever enduring capital city. He's united the people, he's secured the borders, he's established a capital, really cementing Israel and its new nation status. And with all those things done, now one thing, and to David this was the single most important thing, remained to be done. And that was having established Jerusalem as the military capital of Israel, and having established Jerusalem as the political capital of Israel, he now wanted to, and again, this was over and above all else, establish the city of Jerusalem as Israel's religious, spiritual capital, its center of worship as well. And the way he wanted to do that was by what we began to see here in this chapter, by bringing the ancient sacred Ark of the Covenant, which had, which had been stolen years earlier by the Philistines when they invaded and, and even after being recaptured, had languished in obscurity due to the neglect of King Saul, who had no heart for God, didn't care about spiritual things, at least for most of his life he didn't. This Ark of the Covenant, this sacred religious item, had been away in obscurity, and David said, if we are truly going to be the people of God, if we are going to understand who we are and make Jerusalem our religious spiritual center, we need to go get that Ark of the Covenant, and we need to bring it out of obscurity and bring it back now. You may be wondering, particularly if you've not spent a lot of time in the Old Testament, what's the big deal with the Ark of the Covenant? And, and to understand the big deal with the Ark of the Covenant, the first thing you have to do is forget everything you ever saw in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, all right? Great movie, but really bad theology. Forget everything you saw in that movie, at least temporarily. Now you're going to want to go watch it tonight. So do I. Maybe we will. I don't know. But... Here's what you need to know, the truth about the Ark of the Covenant from the Scriptures. And we're going to throw on the screen just, there's, no one knows for sure exactly what it looked like, but this may be a, a, something of a, a meaningful representation of, of the Ark, what it truly was like or may have looked like uh, back in Old Testament times. And what you need to know about it quickly is this, that according to Exodus chapter 25, the Ark of the Covenant was constructed, God instructed Moses to build it. He said, Moses, I want you to build an Ark. Uh, and what that was, it started as simply a rectangular box made of acacia wood. It's about four feet long by about three feet wide, almost three feet deep, ordinary box. But it had some ornamentation. God had some design that he wanted Moses to put on it. And when that box had been constructed, then he instructed Moses to overlay it with pure gold inside and out. Now it's no longer an ordinary box, right? This is something precious, valuable uh, in, in spiritual and in other ways. And and then once that was done, the box was built, it was overlaid in gold. You can see on the corners that sort of rings or, or sockets there were attached through which these poles in it were run. And that's something really important that we're going to see later on in the story. And the reason those rings and those poles were put there was because God was instructing, God also instructed Moses in his word, that there was one way and only one way for this ark to be transported from one place to another. 
And that was through these poles, because the ark itself was never to be touched, and those poles were only to be carried, only to even they be touched, by a certain line of consecrated priests. Their job and their job alone, it was to carry and to transport the ark as Israel moved about, first the wilderness and then into the promised land. One more detail, though, you need to know about the Ark of the Covenant it has to do with those angels. That's the, the word cherubim you see in verse 3. It talks about cherubim on the top of the Ark. Uh, those up there as well, very, very significant, particularly for what we're looking at in God's Word today. Because when God told Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant, he said, I want you to put two cherubim on top. Again, this is maybe what it was like. But the idea was, by having their wings touched, they were enclosing an open space on the top of the ark. They surrounded that space, and the space inside their wings, inside those two angels, was called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was quite literally, this is very important, at that time in the Old Testament era, the holiest place on planet earth. That open space, the mercy seat, among the wings of those angels, the holiest place on planet earth, because that is where, once the work was complete, the invisible spirit of Almighty God dwelt. That's where God was present among his people. Exodus chapter 40, the last couple of verses tell us, that when Moses finished building the Ark of the Covenant, built the tabernacle, the tent that it was placed in, and everything else that went with it, we're told in Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, that then a cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, particularly on that mercy seat. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And my point is this, from that point on, everywhere Israel went, Everywhere the nation traveled until they finally settled in the promised land, the Ark of the Covenant was to go first. The Ark of the Covenant was to be set up first. And it was to be set up at the physical center of the Israelite encampment as a visible reminder that everywhere we go, everything we do, everything about the way we live is done coram deo, in the presence of God. Before the face of the Lord, he is truly, literally with us. And according to verses 1 through 5, nothing mattered more to King David than that, than that he and the Israelites, the people of God, prioritized God's presence, that they were always aware that he was with them. And the reasons why that's so, and what in the world that has to do with us today, thousands of years later, becoming revival-ready people, is spelled out in the rest of this chapter where there are four things about the presence of the Lord I want you to see. Four things I believe we need to see in order to become revival-ready people based on what we see here in the story of David in the Old Testament. And they are as follows, and as always, we're just going to take them in the order that they come, that they're found in the text, which is this, number one. The first thing that David, in seeking to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, back to the very center of the life of his people, is going to show us is that the presence of the Lord is, first of all, a fearsome thing. One of the things we need to know about the presence of God is that the presence of God is a truly fearsome thing. Because here's where the story, if you look at your Bible, pick it up in verse 6, gets really, really interesting. It says, now when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, remember they went out to this place, this, uh, uh, this, this village where the, the Ark of the Covenant had been kept. They're bringing it back toward Jerusalem at David's instruction. And it says, when they came to a place called the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, who along with his brother Ahio were leading the procession, reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen nearly upset it. 
And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? I want you to try to set yourself down for just a moment in this story. And ask yourself, if I had been Uzzah in that situation, would I have done anything different if I saw the ark of God about to flip over onto the ground? And ask yourself, if you were King David and you saw Uzzah do that, and then you saw what God did, would you have felt any different than David did in verse 8? I mean, Uzzah just did what would seem like, the, we can't let this sacred relic this, fall on the ground. And, and David's got to be thinking, God, he's just, he's just trying to do the right thing. And here God strikes him dead. Would we have felt or done or responded any differently? I don't know. But as always, in a story like this, there's more to it than meets the eye. So I want you to dig with me just a little bit deeper. Because the issue of what happened here with Uzzah touching the ark actually began back in verse 3. When it says, look again at your Bible, they placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab and take it down to Jerusalem. And that seems like a thoughtful thing. We're going to bring the ark of the Lord back. Let's not put it on an old cart. That wouldn't be appropriate. David thought to himself, let's build a new cart. Because after all, it is the ark of the Lord, and we'll get it back to Jerusalem that way. But what did I tell you a couple of minutes ago about the ark and how it was to be transported? It was only to be transported on the poles running through the rings, and the, the poles themselves were only to be touched by a certain line of priests from the tribe of Levi, from the family of a man named Kohath. Only those guys and all the millions of Israelites were ever allowed to pick it up and touch it. So by putting, my point is this, by putting the Ark of God, even though it was a new cart, even though it wasn't dirty, it had never been used before, David was violating Old Testament law in two respects. And so while his motives were good, his method was bad. Bad enough to cost this man Uzzah his life. And it's been suggested, and I happen to agree, that in verse 8 when it says David became angry, David wasn't angry at God. God, how could you strike this man down? No, David was angry at himself for making such a costly compromise. How could I have done that? I knew better. I should have known this is my fault. I think he was angry at himself. And for our purposes this morning, all of that together is a powerful reminder, listen, of what the Bible means when it says to us that our God is a holy God. That our God is a God who, because of who he is and what he's like, is never to be approached on our terms, simply what we think is best. He is always only to be approached on his terms. It shows us what this does, is that his presence is a fearsome thing. And that's something, if you look again at verse 9, David now understood very clearly. He says to himself, I'm afraid of the Lord. He was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? If this is what happened when one man, out of instinct, reaches out and touches the ark, and he struck it on the spot, how can I think of bringing this ark any further. And David was afraid. Now, perhaps you find it a little off-putting to think of God as someone to be feared in that way. The God that we preach of, of love and mercy and grace and compassion and kindness and forgiveness strikes people dead. That we shouldn't be afraid of God, and certainly we shouldn't let the rest of the world know that that's what he's like. That might be offensive to them. That might be upsetting to them to think of our God as a fearsome God. But if that's the way you're inclined to think, or at least that question's in your mind, it means you're defining fear the wrong way. Because when the Bible talks about God being fearsome, talks about the fear of the Lord, 
It is not using the, the word, the term fear in the, in the Halloween, ghosts and goblins, horror show, horror movie, grim reaper kind of sense. That's not what it means that God is a fearsome God. Now, when you see the word fear in the Bible referencing God, the fear of the Lord, the primary filter through which you should define it is the word awe, an awesome fear, an awesome God. As I thought about it this week, maybe the, the best parallel, the kind of fear and awe put together is the kind of, kind of awe that draws you to the rim of a canyon, the Grand Canyon, the kind of awe that compels you to climb or travel to the top of a great mountain, the kind of awe, the kind of impulse that draws you to the top of a skyscraper, up to the edge of the window, out to the observation deck. And what are you thinking when you do those sort of things? This is a little bit dangerous, but it's too good to miss. It's drawing me out. As it says, as C.S. Lewis said once about Aslan, who pictures Christ in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. It's not safe, but it's good. And it draws me back. If you've been to the Grand Canyon, if you've been to Pikes Peak, you go, man, I just, it's a little bit unsafe. It's a little bit scary, but I wouldn't miss it because of the glory that it reveals to me. See what I'm saying? When we see that David was afraid of the Lord, that our God is a fearsome God, that's what we are supposed to see. It's a kind of fear that both beckons and humbles. It invites, but it cautions. Bottom line, what am I saying is this. The message here in verses 6 through 9 is that, well, listen, while God's on our side, he's not in our pocket. While God is on our side, he is not in our pocket. And revival-minded people get that, that God's presence, represented here by the Ark of the Covenant, is in fact, and it's okay to say it, a fearsome thing. But that's not all it is, because the story's not over yet. There's a second thing this story tells us about the presence of God and what revival-minded people need to know about it, that not only, number one, is it a fearsome thing, but the presence of the Lord and, and seeking to live our lives, Coram Deo, before his face, at all times aware of his presence, we understand, secondly, that the, the presence of the Lord is a glorious thing. It's a fearsome thing, but it is a glorious thing. Look with me next at verses 10 and 11. It says, now David was unwilling, because of what just happened, to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David, into Jerusalem with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. So the, the point is simply this. What happened to Uzzah, his immediate demise, being struck down by God for irreverently touching the ark, as you might expect, brought the parade to an abrupt halt. All right, no more parade, no more music, no more celebrating till we figure out, till we remember what we're dealing with here, who this God is and what he's like. But of course, they couldn't just leave the ark there on the threshing floor of Nacon. Well, we'll come back for it later. No, it's the ark of God. And apparently, what we gather from verses 10 and 11 is that the nearest shelter was a house somewhere close by that was owned by a man named Obed-Edom the Gittite. <laughs> And they said, Obed-Edom, the Gittite, we don't know if you think this is your lucky day or not, but you get the ark for a little while. <laughs> and I thought about that. I thought, what if this guy had toddlers, right? <laughs> I have a four-year-old. <laughs> it's the ark of God. Don't touch it, whatever you do. Leave it alone. But that's what they did. It had to go somewhere. Sort of a fearsome thing, but what did verse 11 say? Look again at your Bible. The ark of the Lord remained in his house three months, and the Lord, what's your Bible say? What's the next word? What does it say? Blessed. 
Obed-Edom, and all of his family. Bottom line, the presence of the Lord, here it is, is as wonderful as it is fearful. It's as glorious as it is awesome. And that, and here's the point I'm really driving at. Here's the thing I really want to set before you this morning. That extraordinary things happen and incredible blessings flow when God is present and central in the minds and hearts of his people as they worship, as they live their lives, as they linger where he is. Extraordinary things happen and incredible blessings flow when God's people gather together when they are literally as it was here in his presence. And if you think about it, if you've been a believer long, you know this is true. Think of your own life, of times you've been in a worship service singing God's praise. You've listened to the preaching of God's word or you're in a Bible study. You're gathered with others for corporate prayer. You have come to the table, as it were, for communion. And suddenly in the midst of the worship, in the midst of the message, whatever else is going on, you realize God is talking to your heart in a personal and appointed way. He does these things. He reminds you of a promise that meets you at your point of need. He assures you of his presence. Some of you have told me the story of being in a hard season, and as you were praying, other people gathered around you. It's as if God himself just wrapped you up. Some of you have had that experience, and it's real. You've you've prayed. You've sought God. You've pursued him. Maybe you came to that gathering, that time, in, in a place of need, and somehow, someway, he provided for you. You never saw it coming. Some of you, and I... If I were to look into your eyes, I know who you are. You can say, yeah, God's people. I met with God's people. We prayed, and I was healed, right, of illness and sickness. We have those stories here in our own church family. What am I saying? I'm saying in the presence of the Lord, amazing things happen. In the presence of the Lord, extraordinary blessings flow. Obed-Edom's situation, brief as it is, the, the, this, the simple mention of him in the Scripture teaches us something. And what it teaches us is certain things happen in the presence of, Lord, of the Lord that, that do not, sometimes cannot, and even sometimes will not happen apart from it. When we are living our lives apart from him, when we are forsaking the gathering of ourselves together in his presence and in his name. My point is that the Lord's presence is a glorious thing. And while we aren't told exactly how Obed-Edom was blessed, we aren't told specifically what the blessings looked like, what the answers may have been, what the provisions happened to be, whatever it was, you can see this much, it was significant enough that it didn't stay with him, that word got out, that word got around, and soon enough, word got all the way back to King David, who decided if that's what's happening in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, where the, the Ark of the Lord has been parked temporarily, we need to get it to the center of the nation. We need to get it to where all people can experience that. We need to make the presence of the Lord central to who we are and what we're doing after all. And so beginning in verse 12, look at your Bible. Here's what happened next. We're told it was told King David, verse 12, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. So what did David do? David went and brought up the ark of God a second time from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. 
a thank offering, a praise offering. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord and shouting in the sound, and at the sound of the trumpet. And then it happened that as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michael, the daughter of Saul, also David's wife, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing. The word literally means whirling around before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. From which I gather and would say to you, submit to you, that that tells us that not only, number one, is the presence of the Lord a fearsome thing, he is to be revered, and we are to approach him in a sense of awe. And not only, secondly, is the presence of the Lord a glorious thing, amazing and extraordinary things happen, blessings flow when we gather together in his presence and in his name. But the middle part, really the main part of this story also reveals is the third thing, that the presence of the Lord is a liberating thing. The presence of the Lord, if God is truly present among his people, it is a liberating thing. Because the issue here in verses 12 through 19 is not whether or not dancing is a permissible form of worship. I think it happens to be based on this story. Nor is the question, as I've heard people pose it before, the question here, something we need to resolve is whether or not David was dancing before the Lord in his underwear. It says he was in a linen ephod. No, no. That was a priestly garment. That's not the point here either. The point is this. Listen closely. In the presence of the Lord, people are set free. In the presence of the Lord, people are, again, the presence of the Lord represented by the ark, people are set free. I mean, just look, you don't need me to walk you through this section a verse at a time. You can do it yourself, and and you could gather it already simply for having me read it with you once. Everything about this section where they are now bringing the ark of the Lord back in the right way, according to God's own design, in fear and reverence, understanding his glory, desiring that to be shared with all the people, everything about this section of David dancing before the Lord and bringing the ark back in expresses abundant joy, phenomenal generosity, vibrant fellowship, and passionate praise. There's no hint of restraint here. Even though God is fearsome and, and awesome, and even though God is glorious, he sets his people free. And everything about this suggests no restraint, no inhibition, no, I wonder what everybody else is thinking. Nothing of the sort at all. And that's not an isolated thing if you know your Bible. That's not just David. No, the presence of the Lord, wherever the Lord is present, is always, or at least if our hearts are open and we are worshiping him in in humility, that always happens in the presence of the Lord. Just think about the life of Jesus in the New Testament. Let me just ask you some questions. These are rhetorical. Just think through the answers for yourself. Is there a single person we've ever seen in the Scripture who was carried to Jesus on a stretcher for healing who left the same way? Was there ever a sinner who came to Jesus for forgiveness, who left feeling more dirty than when they came? 
Was there ever a tax collector who came to Jesus in humility and in repentance, seeking his blessing, his his help with their life, who left more in love with their money than when they showed up? Did Jesus ever attend a funeral that did not conclude with a resurrection? Did the woman who came into the room before his betrayal and anointed his feet for burial washing them with her tears and wiping them with her hair. Let me ask you this question. Did she care what anyone else was thinking? No. Why? Because in the presence of the Lord, people are set free. In the presence of the Lord, people are set free. They can be, they ought to be, they should be. And sooner or later, they will be. Again, that's not just my opinion. Psalm 16 says, in the Lord's presence, there is an abundance of joy. 2 Corinthians 3 says that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Galatians 5 says it was for freedom that Christ set us free, not for restraint. The same thing can and should be true for us if we're serious about setting our sails for revival. We should understand that in the Lord's presence, there is freedom. In the Lord's presence, there is Liberty, because his presence is, by definition, a liberating thing. And when people get into it, they're always changed. If they're not, can I just say this? If they're not being changed, as we sometimes say, that's not a him problem, that's a you problem. That's a me problem. It means there's something that I need to work out with him. Because this is what his presence does. So what does this story tell us so far? The presence of the Lord is a fearsome thing. There is a right way and a wrong way to approach him. There's a right attitude to begin with. Presence of the Lord is a glorious thing. When God shows up and his people are aware of him and pursuing his presence together, pursuing his face together, blessings come, amazing things happen. The the presence of the Lord, thirdly, is a liberating thing. People don't become more uptight the closer they get to Jesus. They become set free. And then fourth and finally, the last thing this story tells us, that according to David, and it should be true for us as well, the presence of the Lord is the most important thing. The presence of the Lord is the most important thing. Look at the final four verses of this story, and we'll try to bring this to a conclusion. It says, but when David returns to bless his household, after all this celebration and dancing and worship, Michael, the daughter of Saul, interesting, she's not identified as David's wife, though she is. She's identified the daughter of Saul because she had the spirit of her father, Saul came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servant's maids as one of the foolish ones, shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord. (laughs) Watch out, Michael, here it comes, who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes, but with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now, Michael's greeting may have stunned David, the fact that that is the way she greeted him when he came home to bless his household. But we saw it coming, didn't we, back in verse 16. Because it said in verse 16 that as David is dancing and whirling and praising the Lord, she's up there in the window with her arms crossed, judging his behavior, evaluating his style of worship, deciding in her heart that is not the way it ought to be done. How come? Because she had her priorities wrong. 
Her priorities were all backwards and mixed up. It irritated her. Verse 20 makes it clear. At least to me, it makes it clear. I think you may agree with me. That, that in his exuberance, David was disregarding both the formal attire, the robes of a king, as well as the decorum that she thought a king should express. He's in a linen ephod. Why? Because he took his royal robe off. He's just wearing the ordinary garment of a consecrated priest, which he was allowed to do in this situation. So that stuff doesn't matter. It did to her. Why? Because she had grown up as the daughter of the king. Now she's the wife of the king. Apparently that was pretty important to her. And David, if you go behaving this way, people are going to think you're nuts. And David, if you really act this way and worship this way and behave this way in public, it, it could do damage to our position, and I don't want to lose what I've got. I think that's her problem here. She's in love with status, power, privilege, material stuff. David is in love with the Lord. And how did he answer in verses 21-22? I wasn't doing it for you. I wasn't even doing it for them. I was doing it for him. I was doing it for him. I was dancing Coram Deo because the presence of the Lord is the most important thing. The most important thing. Remember what I said to you a couple of weeks ago. It's still true. That the revival-minded people who, who, who become revival-ready churches are those who understand there's room for only one throne in my life. And there's only one person worthy to sit upon it, and that is Jesus David understood that. Revival-minded, revival-ready people know that a life lived with him at the center, constantly aware of his fearsome, glorious, liberating presence is the most important thing to them, for them, and about their entire life. And don't miss the warning that Michael's presence here gives, and it is a warning to us, that it is possible to be among God's people and still isolated from God's presence due to the condition of your heart. consequently miss out and perhaps even quench revival. Before we close, let me offer you just one thought about the story of David. Not surprisingly, at least for me, it comes from Eugene Peterson in commenting on this story, but he's really looking at David's life as a whole. And I want you to think about this, particularly given the, the very specific season we as a people are in. The observation from this story as emblematic of David's entire life that Peterson makes here is this. The fact that David, though he was king, greatest king of Israel, was on the throne for 40 years. Nobody better before him or after him until, of course, Jesus came. Here's what Peterson said. Remember that David influenced far more people by his worship than he ever did his politics. That's here. David's king. She's worried about his role as king. What does this mean to you as king? What does it mean to your influence and power as king? David says, no, no, no. It's not my politics. It's my worship. David was king 40 years. It doesn't mean anything anymore. David wrote the Psalms. I read them this morning. They ministered to my heart. It may be the same for you. David influenced far more people by his worship than he ever did his politics, than he ever did by his power, than he ever did through military might or political influence. And so I wonder is being in the Lord's presence right here, right now, each of us today, a longing that we share in our hearts as well? Is the Lord's presence to us truly the most important thing? Do you long to be among God's people, seeking His face, pursuing His presence, and then walk away ready, committed to living the rest of your life, coram Deo, before the face of God, always aware of His presence? 
Because the big idea of the message this morning is that revival-minded people prioritize God's presence. They understand it really is the main, the most important thing. It's the face of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, being together with His people in that place. Is it or is it becoming the most important thing to us? Father, I believe with all my heart you have convinced me more than ever. And I pray that that any conviction that we have that's similar would be from you, not because I feel this way, but Father, that nothing matters more than as your people getting into, seeking, pursuing your presence. Lord, even that psalm John read for us earlier, The Lord said, seek my face, and my response was, your face, O Lord, I will seek. Father, we live in a a day, a season, literally in an hour, where it feels like everything is chaotic. And and if things will just break a certain way, if if politically, militarily, economically, whatever, relationally, if it just break a certain way, everything's going to be okay. No, that's not true. We seek your face. We seek your face. We cry out to you, we turn to you, we run to you, we stay with you. Father, then it doesn't matter what happens because we will be surrounded and enveloped and shielded and empowered by your fearsome, glorious, awesome, liberating presence. Father, nothing matters more than getting to you and taking as many others with us as possible. Father, convict us, convince us, compel us, persuade us to be a a generation, Father, to be a church, to be a congregation that truly does seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. This is nothing matters more than the presence of Jesus. Nothing matters more than than getting to your feet, than, than hearing your voice, than responding to your word, than singing your praise. This is no time, Father, for apathy. It is no time for neutrality. It's no time for indifference. Knit our hearts together with one another before you. May it be your face and your face only we seek. Today, tomorrow, always, may we live coram Deo before the face of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.